Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now nearing the end of our third season, but we remain probably more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here are issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung, heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show, the first in our series on air pollution and transportation. And today we're going to focus in on trouble in the air, current and future challenges with our air quality. Now, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, our dear EPA, great progress has really been made in achieving national air quality standards, which the EPA originally established back in 1971. And of course, they update it periodically based upon the latest science. And one sign of this progress is that visible air pollution most of the time anyway, is less frequent and less widespread than it was in the 70s. However, I think here in North Texas, perhaps a few months ago, we we saw the African red dust and some other things. However, air pollution can be harmful even if you can't see it. Newer scientific studies have shown that some pollutants can harm public health and welfare even at very, very low levels. And today, pollution levels in many areas of the United States actually exceed the national air quality standards that the EPA has set uh, for at least one of the six common pollutants. And looking at some of the then attainment status maps that the EPA puts online, about the only thing I could really surmise that the areas had in common is that most of them seem to be interior areas of the country. And I guess from when I lived in in South Florida for many years, maybe the, the air and things kind of blow it away. Now, although levels of particle pollution or particulate matter, PM, and ground-level ozone pollution are substantially lower than they were in the past, levels are unhealthy in numerous areas of the country still. And both of these pollutants are the result of emissions from diverse sources, and they travel long distances and across state lines. That's the thing about pollution. It's, it's, It's equal opportunity. And it doesn't stop at the zip code. It doesn't stop at the county line, the state line, and doesn't even stop at the country line. And an extensive body of scientific evidence shows that long and short-term exposures to the particulate matter can cause premature death and harmful effects on the cardiovascular system, including increased hospital admissions and emergency department visits for heart attacks and strokes. And scientific evidence also links particulate matter to harmful respiratory effects, including asthma attacks. And then there's ozone, and it can increase the frequency 
of asthma attacks. It can cause shortness of breath. It can aggravate lung diseases and cause permanent damage to lungs via long-term exposure. And the elevated ozone levels are linked to increases in hospitalization, increases in emergency room visits, and again, premature death. And both of these pollutants cause environmental damage, and the fine particles also, of course, impair visibility. Then, for unhealthy peak levels of sulfur dioxide, which comes from coal and oil and it's very smelly stuff, and nitrogen dioxide, which comes from burning fossil fuels, that is gasoline, both pollutants cause multiple adverse respiratory effects, including, again, increased asthma symptoms, and they're associated with increased emergency department visits and hospital admissions for respiratory illnesses. Both of these pollutants also cause environmental damage and they're byproducts of fossil fuel combustion. Another pollutant, Airborne lead pollution was, in the past, a nationwide health concern before the EPA phased out lead in motor vehicle gasoline under the Clean Air Act Authority. And, of course, now those primarily meet the national air quality standards, except in areas near certain large lead-emitting industrial facilities. And lead is associated with very significant neurological effects in children, such as behavioral problems, learning deficits and lowered IQ, and high blood pressure and heart disease in adults. But now there is a little good news. The entire nation does meet the carbon monoxide air quality standards, and that's largely because of emission standards for new motor vehicles under, again, the Clean Air Act. And motor vehicles are indeed a leading source of air pollutants that affect human health. Vehicle emissions contribute to the formation of ground-level smog that we can see, and they trigger health problems, as we mentioned before, as well as triggering increased respiratory illnesses, including pneumonia and bronchitis. And motor vehicles, particularly those used for freight, are also a major source of the particulate matter. Now, according to the Environmental Defense Fund, around the world, nine out of 10 people breathe unhealthy air. Air pollution is now the biggest environmental risk for early death, and it's responsible for 6 million premature deaths each year from heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, and, of course, respiratory diseases. That's more than deaths from AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria all combined. Children, the elderly, people with existing diseases, and our usual vulnerable populations, and increasingly all of us, are increasingly subject to adverse health outcomes and economic impacts such as missed workdays from exposure to air pollution. Research suggests that long-term exposure to some pollutants increases the risk of emphysema more than actually smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And recent studies also show air pollution can impact mental health, it can impact worker productivity, and even the stock market performance. Now, to me, though, some of the good news out of this is that we can very well measure air quality. 
And that's how we know all these things that we've been talking about. That's how we know them. That's how we can see all these effects. For example, when we know that smog is heavy or there are other pollutants out there, then we can look at the hospital emissions. We can look at emergency room visits. And that gives us spot on information. It is not speculation. Now, this is a lot. But here today, to help us unpack and understand some of this, are some guests that I'm really excited about. We have with us Dr. Rima Habre, and she is an Associate Professor of Environmental Health and Spatial Sciences at the University of Southern California. Rima received her Doctorate of Science in Environmental Health and Air Pollution Exposure Science from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And her research aims to understand the effects of co-occurring environmental exposures, air pollution mixtures, and social stressors on the health of vulnerable populations across the life course. Rima also co-chairs a working group that's investigating the influences of the environment on children's health in early life. Welcome, Rima. And did I get all of that right? You certainly did. Thanks so much for having me. And again, thank you for making time to be with us. And our other guest, who I'm very excited about, is Chris Klaus. And Chris is with the Transportation Department of our own North Central Texas Council of Governments, or the COG. They are the Metropolitan Planning Organization for the DFW Metroplex and the North Texas communities, which I think is about Uh, a 15-county region, and they do so much stuff, I can't keep up with it all, but it's very exciting and very important for our everyday lives. Chris manages the department's air quality planning and operation activities, which respond to federal air quality requirements and works toward reaching attainment of the national ambient air quality standards. Chris does serious, in-depth, on-the-ground work. And Chris has both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in civil engineering, which I thought was very interesting and and, and I think should be a requisite, really, for the type of work that he does. Welcome, Chris. Did I get all of that right? Yes, you did. Thank you very much and appreciate the opportunity to be here. Well, we're very excited that you could be with us. And we just have a couple of minutes before we go to break. So I'm going to start out. Uh, with a, a, a quick question, or it's not a quick question, but I need Rima to give me a quick answer and we can get back on the other side. And that is, Rima, I want to do start out with kind of a primer for our audience. What exactly do we mean when we talk about or use the term air quality? And what are the factors that determine air quality and how is it measured? And again, we have two minutes and I know we're going to have to break this question up and get back with you on the other side. Go ahead. Sure, sure. So when we say air quality, we literally mean the quality of the air we're breathing, right? And so that could be some physical aspects of it, some chemical aspects, some biological aspects. When we say air pollution, it means those different parameters got to be so high that they're beyond sort of the level that we think is useful for the purpose of that, you know, air quality. So for example, or or for what we would expect for it to be naturally, right? So when levels go really high, that's when we call it air pollution. And I'm happy to say more when we come back in terms of how we measure it. Indeed. And and I know that for the most part, air quality and air pollution is geographically based. But as we've talked about earlier, and as we have all seen and experienced, it travels. It does not stop at the at the lines. But you know, today in North Texas, we may have one air quality situation, whereas where you are in uh, San Diego, 
or Southern California, it may be it may yeah. be different. And the same thing over in Africa where they send that that red dust from. We're going to go to break now and give a shout out to our sponsors. And we'll be right back on the other side with Chris Klaus and with Dr. Rima Habre. Thank you. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods, grocers, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available online, free for download at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, looking at the whole body, none mercury. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lindentalcare.com. And we have a new sponsor, the Weston A. Price Foundation, where ancestral wisdom meets up with modern science on food, farming, and the healing arts. The Weston A. Price Foundation is a nutrition foundation teaching people about healthy foods of the past and how they can incorporate those into their life. The foundation educates people about why grass-based and other foods are better quality and helps them find these foods. And currently, they have a 50% pledge campaign going on where they encourage people to purchase 50% of their foods from local farms and artisans. And most importantly, their annual conference is coming up, and that's going to be in Knoxville, Tennessee, on October 21 through 23 at the Knoxville Convention Center, where nearly 1,000 attendees will be connecting local farms with health-conscious consumers for meals, exhibitors, and 30 impressive speakers. Check them out at wisetraditions.org. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today to our show on trouble in the air, current and future challenges with our air quality. And we are back with Rima Habre from the University of Southern California and Chris Klaus from the North Central Texas Council of Governments. And again, we're so happy that they could join us to help us unpack some of this very important information that just is really all around us. And I think we tend to take for granted, except when we're having an asthma attack or perhaps like me, our allergies are are flaring. So before the break, Rima was telling us or trying to help us just kind of lay the groundwork for our common definition of air quality. And we talked a little bit about that, but tell us again, though, how it's determined and how it's measured. So we measure various things about the air, right? You might think about particles and the number concentration or just how many particles there are. That's a measure we care about for really tiny particles. We might weigh how much they weigh in terms of the mass concentration. You know, we collect them on filters sometimes. We measure gases as well. We call that a mixing ratio. 
There's lots of different methods to measure these air pollutants, but it's important to distinguish that there are what we call reference methods that agencies such as Chris's that regulate air quality have to rely on because that gives us very high quality information. But there's also now a lot of kind of what we call low cost or commercial ways of measuring some aspects of air quality. And that is also helpful information. Um, it's just is kind of not in the same tier as what we call reference measurements. And Chris, tell us a moment about those reference methods and how you all measure. Yeah, so in the, in the region, there's about uh, 20 ozone monitors that are regulatory in nature. They're in a, in a defined location that they've been in place for a very long time. They're, they're maintained on a very regular basis for their accuracy and they basically sniff the air all day. And that, that is what, what helps us determine, you know, what are the emission concentrations or the emission levels, uh, depending on the types of uh, monitors that are on that, that pole, let's say. It helps to determine what type of emissions are at that particular location at that time. But then you can also use these monitors to also help to, de- to determine where the emissions may have come from, you know, by, by using some of the monitors that might be, say, upstream of other monitors in the area, you can start to, you know, paint some pictures to see the evolution of, of some of the uh, the formation of these of these emissions as the day progresses. Can you give us an example of, of that? What you're just talking about? Yeah. So, like, there's a there's a monitor in, in say Denton County, for example, at the airport. It it does monitor ozone. There's a there's an ozone monitor there. And during the course of the overnight and early morning, the ozone levels readings are very low. As the course of the day progresses, the ozone starts to pick up in terms of its readings at this monitor. Unfortunately, Denton is one of the, the monitors that is a challenge for us where there's a number of, of exceedances that are recorded at that monitor. But then what we'll do is we can look at the monitors that are in North Fort Worth or North Dallas in Arlington. You know, we can also look as well and look at maybe some profiling to see, well, where, how did the ozone actually form how did it progress across the day? What, what, what are the levels of each of these monitors uh, that were impacting the public? And a lot of it has to do with where the, the fronts and the, the airstream is going. Normally the airs, you know, the, the, the winds are generally from the southeast and it goes to the northwest. So generally a lot of the southern pollution that, that actually is emitted uh, gets carried into the, to the wind patterns and then they they formulate the ozone in the afternoon, unfortunately, at the, at the Denton Monitor. Indeed. I know we have a local organization here in uh, North Texas called Downwinders at Risk. And I didn't understand that initially. It's like, what are they talking about? And they, they have done a lot of work and focused on a cement plant way, way south I-35, even out of, out of Dallas. And that seems to be something relevant to what you're, what you're talking about. Exactly. So, you know, so cement kiln has a process where it uh, contributes. They have stacks coming out of their out of their facilities. It, it emits emissions. Those emissions go into the into the air, into the airstream. Uh, they get carried carried into that stream, and then depending on how the meteorological conditions react over the course of the day, that's where it, it helps. It, it's the fuel that actually is in the atmosphere to help. Uh, create these these high levels of ozone. Now, would you have high levels that are emitted from and around DFW Airport? Yes, yes, you would. Um, just just from the standpoint of aircraft, uh, aircraft, you know, it's an engine, 
So when I, when I say pollution and, and when we're focusing on ozone, let's say, it's really the incomplete combustion of, of engines. So there's an engine, there's a fuel in an engine in a cement plant, there's emissions. There's a fuel, there's, a, there's a, uh, an engine in power plants, there's emissions. There's a fuel, there's an engine in cars, there's, there's emissions. There's a fuel, there's an uh, engine in planes, there's emissions. A lot of these locations and a lot of these sources are heavily regulated, which does control their uh, emissions. But like an aircraft, an aircraft might be in place for 20, 30 years. And, uh, you know, their, their primary, I think, objective is to try to minimize noise, not as a secondary thing would be the emissions. But the new generation of aircraft that have since come in as a result of the fuel economy has really, really lowered the, the, the footprint that the aircraft have in, in a region. And one of the things that I have learned, certainly uh, in three seasons of doing this, is that if it combusts, <laughs> if it burns, if it combusts, it's creating air pollution. Absolutely. And, and the second component of ozone is volatile organic compounds. There's, there's small amounts of that in an, in an incomplete combustion of an engine, but a lot of that is from just plant life, you know, biogenics, as they call it. And it's not like we're going to go around and cut down all the trees and all the, uh, you know, the, the green you know, vegetation and stuff. So the biogenics are there. The biogenics are some biogenics, some trees like oaks have actually have a higher tendency of emitting more volatile organic compounds than other types of species. But those are things that they are in the atmosphere. There's not a whole lot we can do. So the, the focus is trying to reduce the, the, the human impact or the man-made, say, emissions that are able to be I'd say, more of an effort of trying to reduce. Indeed. And I want to come back to you uh, shortly, Chris, to talk about some other common pollutants. But I want to uh, go back to Rima to help us uh, dig a little deeper into the, the volatile organic compounds from that scientific level. Uh, now, I know about the VOCs in paints and things like that, but how much are, the, are plants actually contributing to that? So that's a great question, Bernice. Thank you. And I'm sure we'll come back to sort of indoor environments mm-hmm. and VOCs indoors. But I do want to say, you know, Chris is exactly right, although it is very different by region. So, for example, for us in L.A. here, traffic is such a huge source of VOCs and we have less of the biogenic kind of like tree-based VOC emissions. If you go to Atlanta, for example, you'll see a lot more of those natural emissions. But all together with what we call nitrogen oxides and the traffic, it cooks up into the ozone secondary pollution that we see a lot in L.A. I also want to add a quick thought on airplanes and aircraft. So, you know, again, Chris did such a nice job explaining how we worry about those emissions. There are these really tiny, partic- tiny particles, what we call ultra-fine particles, that we worry about more and more as a result of aircraft emissions. So sometimes, you know, in L.A., if you think about it, at LAX airport, we get thousands of aircraft every day. And what we've seen over time is that that's creating this plume of ultra-fine particles that really stretches way downwind into the communities around LAX airports. And that's been associated with asthma, with cancer outcomes, with a variety of other kind of new evidence that we're starting to see. The trick is ultrafines are not regulated, and we'll come back to it, I'm sure. Oh, my. <laughs> okay, and we just have three <laughs> minutes to go before we go to break. But I want to go back to Chris, and do you tell us about some other, uh, what are some of the other common pollutants that cause air pollution, and where do they come from? Yeah, one, one in particular is particulate matter. I think you indicated that in, in your introduction. 
there's larger particulates and finer particulates. Um, the, those certainly are visible. A big source of particulate matter is just from diesel engines. Diesel construction equipment, or as you indicated, freight vehicles, just have a lot of particulate matter that come out of the out of the tailpipes. So when we're sitting at the stoplight or driving down the highway and some vehicle is in front of us with this big, nasty, ugly plume of black smoke. That's particulate matter. That's particulate matter that probably does not have a particulate matter trap or a, or a strategy on it to collect and, uh, you know, not emit those, those uh, particles. But, yeah, that would be a, probably an older engine that is not running properly, out of tune, uh, running inefficiently, that you're seeing all that black smoke. Yeah, and I wanted people to understand this particular matter we're talking about, we all see that from time to time. Any other examples you might give us of where we actually can see it and know that it's particulate matter? Yeah, and I, and I hate to say this, but in California knows all too well about it. We're Because of our weather conditions this summer, it's, it's certainly wildfires. And just the fires that, that are all around us, you know, they, they emit particulate matter. And you mentioned dust coming from other continents that, that uh, you know, just... Uh, coming to the, the United States, there's there's certainly dust and wildfires are other two heavily uh, contributable sources of, of uh, particulate matter. And I'm glad you mentioned wildfires. We just have a minute to go and we'll continue after the break on some of these other pollutants. But wildfires is, 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 is I am told, one of the biggest risks and issues right now. Because again, though, that smoke travels a lot too. And we'll talk uh, about that a lot more on the other side. We're going to go to break now and we'll be right back on the other side for these two smart people to make us smart. Thank you all. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on trouble in the air, current and future challenges with our air quality. And we are back with Chris Klaus from the North Central Texas Council of Governments and Rima Habre, who is a professor in environmental health and Spatial Sciences at the University of Southern California. Again, thank you all for making time to be with us. Now, before the break, uh, we started talking uh, a little bit about the insurgents, <laughs> wildfires everywhere. I know that we are seeing them in uh, North Texas this year, which we traditionally don't. And I want to talk more about that a little later on, too. But Chris was kind of going down, telling us about some of the other common pollutants uh, that cause air pollution and where they come from. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, when, when we do, there's something called emission inventories that are a real bottom-up assessment of all potential emission sources. So I was indicating earlier, maybe it's coming from power plants, maybe there's cement kilns, automobiles, cars and trucks are a very large component, aircraft, oil and gas drilling that isn't as prevalent in North Central Texas as it once was maybe 10 years ago. But I know like in, in the San Antonio area, oil and gas drilling is huge. But then how much of that is actually traveling up, whether it be uh, oil and gas drilling in San Antonio or even in, in another component is transport. There's a Houston ship channel. There's a lot of industrial going on down in, in the Houston area, a lot more than we have here. But as I mentioned earlier, a lot of our situation of our northern counties are impacted as a result of these, you know, these wind patterns that we have. So what we're seeing is on any given day, there is a large amount of pollution that is already in our area 
blown in from elsewhere across the country. And that's stuff that we can't control locally. So those are conversations that we have to have and are having with other neighboring states and, and regional EPA offices to try to work on reducing those emissions elsewhere so that so that uh, it's not going to have less of an impact on, on our ability to be able to meet these standards. And don't they realize we have a, quite enough of our own without them adding theirs? What, what are some of the more significant pollutants that you are seeing coming into our area and where are they coming into our area from? Well, like, like we were saying earlier, obviously dust when we, when we have these uh, scenarios where it's coming off the Afri- African coast. Uh, we are seeing the dust from wildfires from the western part of the country, Arizona, California. Uh, we are we even nitrogen oxides and in, in volatile organic compounds, the precursors to ozone. We're seeing those in um, from the east coast or the upper Ohio River Basin. You know, areas north of us that are that are kind of drooping down and, and catching a, a wind current and blowing right up into our area. Before the first car is even turned on in the day, these emissions are already coming into our atmosphere. That's interesting. It's kind of like, you know, they have the Gulf Stream in the water. And so I'm, is, is there a name for the airstream that's taking everything around? It probably is. But, but I want people to understand that most people here and have a sense of the Gulf Stream, how it moves down the coast and causes that warm water. And uh, it's important to know that there's a kind of an air component that's taking uh, the pollutants and the emission, as you said, from east coast, west coast, north, and bringing it down. So let me ask the other question. Are, are, are we, do we have the opportunity to, to export ours someplace? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, our neighbors around us uh, use the same argument for uh, our contributions to their, to their you know, emission problems. So I, it, it, what comes around goes around, I guess. You know, every, everyone's playing, playing the argument, using the argument that everyone else is kind of Kind of causing the thing. If it wasn't for these background levels, then you know, obviously our, our contributions wouldn't be as meaningful. Um, but our contributions, as you were saying earlier, just to stack on to what's already you know uh, in the in the atmosphere, and and it does tip us over a lot of these regulatory standards. But the very very important and significant thing I'm getting from this conversation is like with so many other aspects of our culture, our society, and our world. It's all interrelated uh, and intertwined, and you can't unscramble most of it. does not stop at county boundaries or roadway intersections. It's, uh, it's Mother Nature. It goes where it goes. And there are mad scientists out there and a lot of meteorologists that try to predict the weather. And you see how complicated it's been trying to predict the weather uh, in recent you know, months. But, you know, there are just the climate changing, whether it be human interaction, whether it be just naturally occurring, there is some changes to the climate that is actually, you know, making this a lot more complicated to try to predict. And and that prediction helps us with educating the public or the children or the elderly to say, look, even though we're doing everything we can to try to, you know, lower these these contributions, there are days that, that they do rise very high. And if we're unable to predict this accurately, then it's just going to lead to further, uh, you know, challenges to those that 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 do have elements from from these uh, levels. Indeed, and it helps to address the question that I typically ask over and over and over again on our shows, and that is, 
why should people care about this? But I think you've kind of answered that already. Uh, we all have to care about this no matter where we live, because I think it's, it's certainly eye-opening for me about how we're getting all this imported pollution added on top of what we already have. That's why we should care, and we can't stop it. We can't, we can't unscramble it. Chris, you said something earlier that I wanted to ask you about, and you said you all take an emissions inventory. What, what is that? How often do you do it, and, and why do you do it? Yeah, so the, the state, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, they are required to develop a, a air quality plan and provide that to EPA to show how the region will come into attainment, let's say, for the pollutant ozone. So what they do is they contract with us, and we, we develop an emission inventory of the automobiles, cars, and trucks. And that really is just essentially going right down to each individual in vehicle, uh, depending on, and it determines, we, we understand for models that we have, how fast they go, what the age of the vehicles are, you know, where they're going. This isn't like brother, you know, over oversight or anything like that. These are just models and tools that we have and we use data that's available through the census and, uh, you know, traffic counters that our DOT, Department of Transportation, collects. But we, we create these, these emission models that, that actually then predict and estimate how, what are the emissions that are actually emitted by a particular sector on a particular hour, how many emissions are coming out from all of the tailpipes in, in the region. Is this something like uh, in North Texas, we have X number of uh, Lexus cars, um, sedans, and we know that they generate X amount of emissions. Is that how that works? Correct. Through, through vehicle registration, we know all the vehicle types. We know all the model years of the vehicles. Per EPA, they help us with identifying what the emissions would be out of these vehicles, assuming that they're, you know, taken care of and not tampered with or, or whatever. Um, you know, and then all those go into a, a tool that then extrapolate and identify a total amount of emission that might be coming out of that source. The state contracts with others to do power plants. The state contracts with others to do construction equipment. And you put all this into a big, what's called a photochemical model. It's a big, you know, computer simulation tool that then tries to replicate where the ozone is going to form. And so if they can validate that or if they, they, they may look at a past year and they, they've got parameters that they have to meet in terms of accuracy and precision, if they can get their model to predict what happened you know, in the past, then they can recent past, then they can use that with some sort of assurance to forecast what the ozone levels might be in, in the future. That's granular. That's impressive, too. And there's then, Chris, I know that you and your where you work, your job then is to try to do something with it. Once we know where the sources of the issues are, and where they're coming from, we, we work with the local communities on a voluntary basis to try to reduce those footprints, to try to reduce those emissions. But let's say you were able to identify from your work that in Plano, you know, they were going to have a lot of issues and where it's coming from. What kinds of things could be done or do you all do? Yeah, so we would look to see are there truck stops in the area. We would look to see if there's a lot of traffic congestion on the roadways. Obviously, there is. Uh, we, we would look to see, you know, where the efficiency of, of buildings are by the local governments, perhaps. We look to see the, uh, the age of the fleets that the local governments have. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, we peel the onion back and, and really dissect all of the components of, of the sources and then try to come up with identify funding 
and strategic programs that we can work with the local governments and the community uh, to see if there's opportunities to, to lower those, those emissions. Thank you for the explanation. And we're going to go to break shortly. But when we come back, I want to talk to Rima, though, as soon as we come back from the break, though, about looking at uh, indoor air quality versus outdoor air quality and, and how do they affect each other. We're going to go to break now and we want to give a shout out to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex Magazine, the Green Healthy and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care Holistic Dentistry. If you want a healthy and hearty smile to make an impact every time, then your teeth can help you do that. And at Lynn Dental Care, they are there to ensure the health as well as the beauty of your pearly whites. Founded by one of the most experienced periodontists with over 40 years of experience, Dr. Lynn uh, is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DYI classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And our new sponsor is the Weston A. Price Foundation, where ancestral wisdom meets modern science on food farming and healing arts. The foundation educates people about why grass-based and other foods are better quality and then helps them find these foods. The foundation is dedicated to exploring the scientific validation of dietary, agriculture, and medical traditions throughout the world. With its 50% pledge campaign, the Weston A. Price Foundation encourages people to purchase 50% of their foods from local farms and artisans. And then they're having their annual conference in Knoxville, Tennessee on October 21st through 23rd at the Knoxville Convention Center, where nearly 1,000 attendees uh, connecting local farms with health-conscious consumers assemble for delicious meals, exhibitors, and impressive speakers. Check them out at wisetraditions.org. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on Trouble in the Air, where we're talking about the current and future challenges with our air quality. And we are back with Dr. Rima Habre with the University of Southern California and Chris Klaus with the North Central Texas Council of Governments with their transportation department. And he is their air quality guru over there. So thank you all for, for taking time to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Now, I want to go back to Chris really briefly to talk about ozone, because that's something um, we here in North Texas experience a lot, and everybody here has heard about it. And I wonder, Chris, is it just as prevalent? Do other localities give these ozone alerts, and they have the ozone charts and things on TV as, as well as we do? Yeah, it's it's pretty common across the country. Um, you go to Atlanta, California, Chicago. They also have a similar messaging program 
to inform uh, the, the public of, of these, these expected bad days. So tell us, what is ozone? What are high ozone alert days? Why do we have them? And what do they mean for our health? Yeah, so ozone is a colorless, odorless gas. Um, it is formed in the presence of sunlight and heat with the mixture in a photochemical reaction of nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds. Um, they are, you know, impacts the respiratory, lungs. It can, uh, you know, people with asthma, elderly, young, young children. I mean, even... And allergies. Even, Don't like, forget allergies. <laughs> allergies, yeah, absolutely. So these are, these are our common effects of, of ozone and why, why we should all care. Uh, the standard has been in place since, or a form of the standard has been in place since 1990, and EPA keeps, well, they're required under the Clean Air Act to continuously review every six years, you know, the, the, is the standard strong enough? And they, they keep getting lowered. They keep getting stronger. So it's not to say that we are failing and, and can't comply with our ozone standards, we comply with many of the ozone standards. It's just the, the most recent ones are, are very low, and, and we're regrouping to try to implement new strategies and ways to try to lower uh, the, the formation of that, of that ozone. And we haven't talked very much on this show today about the gorilla in the room, climate change, <laughs> yeah. and how it's exacerbating everything. Uh, quick question, too, though. Are the fires, fire, do fires exacerbate ozone? Yeah, they, they do, and there's a lot of studies that are going on right now by the University of commissioned by the University of Texas to try to better understand a lot of the wildfire. I mean, you'll see the particulate uh, matter, you know, components of the fire, but once all the the PM kind of dissipates or falls to the ground, there's still all the the unsighted pollutant elements of the fire that actually is still lingering in the atmosphere and and has some impacts on the formation of ozone. Want to go to uh, Rima here now, and if you can tell us about indoor air quality versus outdoor air quality and how do both of those affect the environment you know we all we usually talk about how the environment is causing or affecting those but i have to think that they also affect the environment that's a great question bernice and if you think about it so we spend most of our time indoors you know now with the pandemic it's even more time than anyone could have imagined and so both indoor air quality and outdoor air quality a, affect each other, strongly affects our health, but also have an effect on the environment. So if you think about all the products and chemicals that we use, a lot of that happens indoors and those emissions end up kind of going into the outdoor environment. But if you also think about what you do in your home on any given day, you know, the cleaning, the cooking, the vacuuming, the personal care products that don't have a lot of information on what's in them, right? The cleaning detergents, that's a lot of chemical exposure that we are getting directly that affects our health, but also gets into the environment. You also get what's a very important component of your personal exposure, which is the air coming from outside into your home, right? Because we don't live in perfectly sealed structures. You open your windows, you know, Houses themselves can be leaky, et cetera. So what's happening outside is still very much important for us in terms of what we are breathing in when we're indoors. Now, Rima, what would you, what do you see, though, as the perhaps the most important and most pressing issues around air quality today? I think, you know, you said it best. Climate change is a very, very important issue of our times. It's changing the landscape of not just weather, but air quality, wildfires, you know, smog pollution, allergens, and how those increase in the air. 
I think there's still the issue of ultra-fine particle pollution that is not really regulated. And that's because it's very challenging to regulate ultra-fines compared to, you know, PM 2.5 that we've been talking about, the larger particles. And I also think, you know, there's an issue with sort of the unfair placement of a lot of these contaminating local sources and industries and sometimes placing major roadways right next to hospitals or vulnerable populations or communities. But I think the sort of the, the justice aspects of these issues is also becoming way more recognized these days. Indeed. And a lot of the environmental justice issues from what we're seeing, too, are now leaking way beyond the usual vulnerable populations, as they say, it's, those issues are coming for all of us now, as well. Our society uh, locally, regionally, and globally is much more intertwined now. One of the things that I just amazes me that I don't hear a lot of people talk about is that air quality issues that take place just about every day of the school year. You notice at elementary schools, I've not seen an elementary school yet that doesn't have like a circular parking lot, uh, driveway or something. And I've seen cars uh, stacked up down two or three blocks waiting to get, you know, to pick up their kid. How much air pollution is that? Who's measuring that? I think that's a widely recognized issue. And hopefully school districts are sort of doing better at preventing idling and kind of lingering of cars. I mean, we very much know that when a car is idling, it's emitting a lot relative to what it would if it was running more efficiently. If you think about it, too, you have kids right then and there very close to the tailpipe, right? Very close to where those emissions are happening um, with their parents. And they're usually hanging around for a while. So all those things together make it more of an exposure concern, right? Because vulnerable kids are getting in contact with it more closely than, let's say, if that same car was out on a freeway somewhere. Chris, are, are, do you all have any programs out at the COG that, that address that? Yeah, I, I give hats, uh, shout out to Everman Independent School District. Everman is the first in our region school district to implement electric school buses. And there's a, a huge push by the Environmental Protection Agency, not so much electric, but just clean school buses, because you talk about indoor air quality, the children inside the bus could be considered inside, you know, indoor air quality as well, too. You mentioned, like, the environmental community. There's a significant push to supplement the regulatory monitors that are expensive and they're complicated with lower-cost, more mobile, um, you know, monitors so that we can, we can see the emissions uh, on, a, on a more, you know, ground-level basis uh, more throughout the region. So at a school, there may not be air quality monitors, but there might be some of these more, you know, lower cost monitors that we can deploy to get a sense as to is, is there a quality issues here. And then as an engineer, we had a program before the COVID, but, you know, COVID kind of shut down all the schools and stuff. So we're, we're re-examining where we go with this. But the idea would be to look at the traffic flow and the patterns and see if we can invest some, invest, put some money into maybe curb cuts or different driveways or different routing of, of vehicles and, and maybe make the efficiency of, of the movement of vehicles and buses, well, more efficient to minimize the emissions that are uh, re released into the area. Indeed, something has to be done about that. We only have a couple of minutes left. Chris, quickly, have you all seen or have uh, any connection with our air quality and the COVID and the pandemic? 
in, intuitively, professionally, I would say there should have been, but we haven't seen anything. It's just the opposite. When, when everything was shut down and all the mandates stay at home, when no cars were driving, aircraft weren't, weren't in the air, buses weren't operated, we actually had just as bad, if not a little worse, air quality. So it, it's counterintuitive. We're, we're researching to see what, what the, what's up with that. Last word, Rima. What do you see uh, as, as some of the most important things that we can be doing now to help drive uh, solutions? we can be, you know, engaged, whatever level we are interested in being engaged, right? I think there's a lot that we can ask for as consumers in terms of more transparency with all the sort of different chemicals that get into our day-to-day lives. Um, And I think it's also important to, you know, get educated about air quality if you're interested in it. Try to join an organization or follow the work of local agencies that are doing important work in this space. Be more proactive towards, you know, having control to what you're exposed to in your environment, what your kids, what your families, what your communities are exposed to, because a lot can happen with policy changes. But, of course, that takes time. Indeed. And compared to a number of the other environmental issues, I feel like air quality and air pollution is one that everyone really can see and that is generally accepted, the knowledge of it. And, again, a lot of it's because we can measure it so well. I, I really appreciate you all helping us with this. You've really made us smarter. And as always, we run out of time. And so we've been with Dr. Rima Habre with the University of Southern California and with Chris Klaus with the North Central Texas Council of Governments. And they really have made us smarter today in terms of our air quality, air pollution, and why we must care about it. It's, it's not an option. So thank you all for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for listening in to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is the result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you. And join us again next week for more on air quality and transportation. Thank you.